You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Cool. Germany is at the heart of the European economy, and the transatlantic economic relationship is the largest in the world in terms of value. And that's why trade and economic policy is such a large part of our work here at the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies, headed by our Geoeconomics Program Director, Peter Rashish. The centrality of trade is also why Peter and I are very excited about today's discussion with Sumeya Keynes. She is the Trade and Globalization Editor at The Economist. She is also, by the way, a prolific podcaster, hosting Trade Talks with Chad Bound of the Peterson Institute, which is something you should all be listening to. Uh, they have done at least 150 episodes her Twitter bio says something about cats. I'm going to ignore that, um, uh, but welcome to you, Sumeya Keynes. Thank you, my, my cats appreciate it. <laughs> yes, we'll leave them out of the picture. Um, so, you know, there have been many changes since January 20th in the United States. And one, of course, is the shift to a much more deliberate and perhaps you could say predictable um, style of governing in the Biden administration. Um, uh, Donald Trump, uh, on the other hand, uh, was full of surprises. Um, he was also obsessed with trade. Um, he called himself a tariff man. Um, he liked to wield and brandish uh, tariffs uh, to try to bluster and uh, also get what he wanted on the international stage. So do you think the Biden administration is going to make trade boring again? And would that be a good thing if they did? <laughs> uh, well, for my blood pressure levels, I'm sure it would be very, very good. Um, yeah, I, I think the the big difference between the Biden administration and the Trump administration is uh, in the Trump administration, often trade policy was foreign policy. Um, and in the Biden administration, trade policy is, is one component of a much bigger um, foreign policy. Uh, and I mean, it, it's really difficult to know uh, what the Biden administration is going to do. Um, so at the moment, it's kind of hard to say that it's easier to predict things. Um, but it's certainly the case that, that they've been much more deliberative. We've got uh, one of the reasons for the silence is that they're sort of stepping back, working out what the China strategy is. They've got the supply chain review. Um, they're really taking the time to, to work out the best things to do that. Uh, and, you know, I think under the Trump administration, there was a story about Mexican officials had um, alerts set up on their phone for whenever the president tweeted, because that was how they were they were getting their, you know, their information on what was happening. That's how that that threat of a of a 25 percent tariff on, on Mexican exports came. Um, I think the world's probably a better place uh, for officials not having to follow President Joe Biden's Twitter feed quite so closely. Right. So um, trade policy is in, in part still uh, yet to unfold under Biden. Uh, it's, but from what, what you can tell, it's, it's going to be probably overall a smaller piece. Is there anything so far? I mean, we're not quite at 100 days, but is there anything so far that, that stands out or that surprised you? And, and, and um, do you think he's at some point going to be able to sort of build back better domestic support for, for trade and for, you know, for the USD part of the global economy, which has been such a neurotic issue of, over the last four years, at least? I think taking the first part of that first, 
the the big surprise over the past few weeks is obviously the the Airbus Boeing decision from the US. So uh, we had this surprise announcement that uh, the US would be suspending its tariffs um, on uh, its retaliatory tariffs as part of this very long running dispute over aircraft subsidies, and, and the EU and the UK did the same thing. Um, now, what I thought was interesting about that is that it seems to have come from the the kind of the political level, not necessarily from USTR. And um, so obviously USTR was involved, um, but the impetus was kind of coming from the center, um, not the result of, you know, negotiators in um, officials in USTR working closely with, you know, officials in the Department for International Trade or, or um, the, the commission in the EU. Now, um, I think it's interesting because uh, whereas one might have expected that conflict to have been resolved in a very narrow way, um, in the way that Catherine Tai has said that she would like. So Catherine Tai, the new United States trade representative, has said she wants to negotiate. She wants to negotiate this problem away. And she will, sorry, and she will be the one doing those negotiations. Um, but the fact that it sort of came from the center, I think suggests something about how that is going to fit into a broader strategy, right? So the US kind of proposed this, um, it's not going to come for free, right? Uh, the fact that the, the, the US is saying, okay, we're going to go slightly easier than we were on these issues, they're going to be asking for stuff elsewhere. Um, I think there was a hope that the Biden administration would come in and say, oh, wasn't that wasn't that unpleasant? Don't worry, we're going to be friendly and nice. Um, but the reality is of international diplomacy, no one's ever kind of selfless and nice like that. No one no one feels guilty for their predecessor and so tries to make up with them. They'll be nicer, but they'll want stuff in return. And then you had a second part of your question, which I have forgotten. Um, well, do you think that that um by taking a deliberate review of trade policy and maybe trying to uh, to fit it into some broader goals um, that the Biden administration ultimately could have some success in getting Americans more supportive of, of, of the country being involved in the international economy and, you know, and a, and a kind of an activist trade policy. I think if you look at the opinion polling right now, trade is pretty popular. Um, and that's partly because, um, you know, the, the moment uh, President Donald Trump said, hey, deals are great. Um, the Republican base, who actually historically have, has been more skeptical of a free trade than, um, than Democrat voters, um, you know, they, they've come along. Um, and then for Democrats, there's nothing like, um, it, I mean, it seems inconsistent, but I suspect uh, protectionist Donald Trump has, um, uh, you know, emboldened some of them. Um, so do I think there will be a strong... Okay, so I think there are two questions. So one is, is it in the Biden's interest to spend any political capital trying to get a trade deal through right now um, or in the medium term, in the next two, three years? I'm, I'm really skeptical. Um, I just don't, I don't think it's going to be worth it given, given the lift that it would take. Um, and so then the broader question is, is the Biden administration going to be able to do anything that leaves the American public clamoring for a new TTIP or a deal with Kenya or the UK? I, 
again, I'm kind of skeptical. I'm not sure when they were last clamoring for such a deal. Um, I mean, certainly there'll be corporate interests that would like those things and um, export facing industries, people in those industries will, will understand, you know, agriculture, um, farmers will understand that they need markets for their products. Um, but will, will the fundamental dynamic that was there under say the TPP, will that change? I'm, I'm skeptical. You know, trade policy itself is one thing that drives these kinds of decisions to launch negotiations with a large, you know, like-minded partner like the EU. But, you know, there's also the all the historical, cultural and political background to that. And, you know, the U.S. and Europe are very, you know, strongly have strong ties. I mean, even if in the absence of, say, some kind of big trade negotiation, do you think that the Biden administration... Um, you know, may be able to, to sort of repair things with Europe, if only, you know, through the kind of domestic policies that it's, that it's pushing. Because if you look at the kinds of things it's doing, it seems to me, you know, whether, you know, whether it's infrastructure or how he's kind of structuring the recovery programs, um, it seems in some ways, he, he, you know, he wants to make the U.S. a little bit more like, like Germany or more like Europe, more like a social market economy. And so maybe even without trade policy, the U.S. and Europe will grow a bit closer because of that? Uh, sure. Um, I guess the stuff that's going to come up most often in meetings, right, is going to be the frictions, right? And so, uh, you know, I, I think if you're the American government, you've just done the heavy, heavy lifting to um, bring in a massive stimulus, right? And you've kind of got this big injection of... of funds, infrastructure, and, and, and so on. Um, I guess from the European perspective, does that make them friendlier towards the US than they were before? Um, maybe. Um, I guess the bigger risk I see is that the US policy changes um, stimulates domestic demand that pulls in a bunch of imports um, and then you get some older tensions about trade imbalances uh, rising up and that actually creating tension. Um, the other thing, the other kind of potential um, area for coordination or harmony would be um, something on the environment. So uh, perhaps a carbon um, border adjustment tax where the EU is sort of going ahead with, with forming its proposals. Um, I think the Biden administration said it, you know, it would be open to considering one. Um, so that that could definitely be an area where they could, you know, it would be good if they coordinated and, and uh, you know, if one goes without the other, then I could also see how there might be some fireworks. Um, so I suppose I don't really know how much practical difference it makes if say the US reforms its unemployment insurance scheme to become more European I'm not sure how many kind of gold stars that gets them and if that really changes much on the ground I, I suspect it's going to be the points of friction that that are a bit more um, important right but but even in trade policy as you say when if it's put together with climate it may have a be able to play a positive role even if it's a bit more circumscribed um, yeah. So as Jeff mentioned, you're, you're the trade and globalization editor. So looking at the second part of that, of your, your title and your responsibilities, um, I'm wondering what you think uh, the effect has been or is, you know, likely to be from, from this pandemic, which, you know, we're, we're coming out of slowly, especially in the United States. 
you know, we saw the problems with supply of PPE. We saw, we see the problems, some problems now with, with, with getting vaccines to everyone. Um, and of course we see concerns uh, in the US, but increasingly in, in Europe about getting too enmeshed with China, at least econ you know, economically. Um, so does, do you think globalization is going to go in reverse? Uh, and, and if so, can we live with that? Um, thinking about COVID, um, I, I guess I would slightly push back on the premise, which is that the, the pandemic revealed this massive, massive problem in globalization. Um, and that's partly because just thinking back to what happened, right? Uh, there was a massive, massive health problem. Uh, there, there still is. There was a massive health problem. Um, and the reason that there weren't enough face masks to go around wasn't primarily that all of them were being made in China, it was that demand for face masks grew like 20 fold or something. That's not the right number, but it grew a lot, right? It's very difficult to disentangle the massive demand shock um, from the supply shock. Um, it's also the case that for, you know, it, it varies by product. There are some kinds of personal protective equipment that were actually already very regionalized in their production within the US. Um, the really low value added um, flimsier face masks yeah no they're all they're all kind of made in in Asia um, but the you know, the N95s is actually a lot of US production there um, and so if you're a company and you're thinking okay what was what was the problem here what do we need to fix um, what do we have to worry about um, one of the one of the things that I think was actually a problem was um, the export restrictions I think a lot of companies didn't they didn't expect those to come on, right? Um, so in a sense, it wasn't, the problem wasn't kind of globalization, it was the policymakers' response in a crisis um, that kind of globalization meant, you know, created issues. Um, but then, you know, some, some of these are kind of having perverse effects, right? So I heard of one company that faced export restrictions um, from its main production hub, and it was looking to expand um, and because it wasn't sure that it would be able to get out supplies to those other countries, it was investing in those other places, right? It wasn't investing where, you know, at home um, in this country that applied an export restriction. Um, now, in one sense, so, so, so let's let's just assume for the sake of this that that is a broader a broader phenomenon, right? And co companies are looking at the world and thinking, oh, you know, we there's all this geopolitical risk out there. We can't be um, we can't be safe, we can't feel safe that governments are going to allow trade to flow from China because of human rights concerns, security, what, what have you. Um, you can think of a scenario in which um, that actually leads to more trade, right? Because instead of, instead of having everything in one place, you say, okay, you know what, actually we need to start building separate supply chains elsewhere. We have diversified production. And so on one measure, you could actually get higher trade to GDP um, as a result of that. Now, with my kind of super wonky hat on, though, if you step back and think, well, what is globalization, right? Is globalization the process of the world becoming closer to a single market? Um, so if you're a company, you can kind of produce any way you want, and you're, you're sure that you'll be able to get it, get your goods somewhere else, and you kind of have prices that converge over, over space. 
that fragmentation that could result from from COVID-19, even if it could lead to more trade, could lead to a move away from that, that single market and that, that sort of globalization ideal. That's a very long answer. The short version is it's really complicated. We don't really know, <laughs> um, but there are lots of risks. Right. So, so there could actually be more trade. It might not be trade in the same places. It may not be sort of optimal from an economic point of view, but it doesn't mean necessarily globalization is going in reverse, but it depends on how you define that. I think it's also what you're saying, right? Yeah. Definitions matter, um, which, uh, you know, everything's complicated. Definitions matter, not generally phrases my editors love to hear me say, um, but but sometimes they are true. That's so, well, that's the joy of having a podcast. You can say those things. Exactly. Um, uh, you know, if, if we could switch gears for a second, um, to look at the European eco- economy. And also, you know, you have a particular perch uh, here as, you know, working for a, a British uh, publication uh, in Washington. Um, so I'd be really interested in your perceptions of the role of Germany, um, and in particular, the relationship of Germany to the United States. Um, do you see that as, as one that has the potential to become more central uh, under a Biden administration, whether it's in economic trade policy or in other fields? Um, uh, or do you see too many impediments, you know, uh, a sort of political paralysis that has set in in the last few months of uh, Angela Merkel's term as chancellor, um, uh, the, 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 the stronger uh, traditional bonds with, uh, with the UK and the, a language barrier that in some ways uh, drives certain uh, relationships. How do you see the role of the role of Germany, and uh, do or do you have any concerns about the role of Germany? Well, my experience of Germans mainly is that their language skills are impeccable or much much better than the average, um, uh, and so I wouldn't I wouldn't be so concerned about that. Um, mm. uh, I think you know the American approach to Europe has always been a very pragmatic one, right? Um, I don't think, you know, the special relationship is a, is a thing um, uh, in some sense, but, but, you know, the reality is now that the UK isn't the gateway into Europe that it, that it once was, it's not as helpful as it was when trying to get Europe to do what it wanted. So in that respect, yes, obviously there's, there's a kind of greater role um, for Germany. There are some um, interesting actors within the Biden administration um, so going back to the issue I mentioned earlier about this risk of um, more American stimulus than European stimulus um, and that generating imbalances, I wouldn't have thought the Biden administration would go easy. Um, and I, you know, I think historically they were, they were fairly frustrated um, by the German reluctance to kind of stimulate Mm-hmm. their own domestic demand and so i suspect if that 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 could be you know be a bone of contention um i mean i, I suspect uh, another uh, another tension or possible area where um the the americans may get frustrated is that obviously there are lots of big german companies with with lots of economic interests in um staying in china um yeah. doing business there uh you know, going back to to what I was saying about the Biden administration wanting things, right? The Biden the Biden administration is going to engage much more with its allies. It's going to engage much more with the EU, but it's also going to ask them for more. And some of that will be effectively to 
you know, to engage differently or in some cases maybe disengage from China, which will come with costs, right? And I would have thought that that the kind of German multinationals will be will be to some extent caught in that. Um, and so that relationship will be very um, important to keep track of. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, you know, I mentioned in the intro that uh, you, of course, are a, uh, uh, have, have a very successful podcast um, yourself. Um, I, I, I wonder, do you, do you find the podcast, um, and you also mentioned, you know, editors um, uh, as well. Um, do you find the podcast kind of complementing and completing things that you want to do but aren't able to do? Uh, in the print medium, um, or how how do you see that fitting into your journalism? I, I'm I'm curious. Yeah, so um, I have it easier than many journalists, and that I not easy. I have a different job to many journalists, right? Which is that I do analysis, right? I, I'm not a straight news reporter. Um, the reality is also that often I in order to come up with the analysis that I do for The Economist, I have to be kind of very opinionated and, and so on. Uh, my personality type is that I kind of, I need to know a lot of the background before I feel comfortable um, opining. Um, and so one of the motivations for the podcast was that I would write my weekly article. The Economist is very, very, um, you know, it's concise. Uh, articles can be very brief. Um, you know, you can easily get 500 words on corporate tax reform or something. Um, and so, you know, I'd, I'd end up with just huge amounts of over matter. Um, and uh, so the podcast was a great was a great venue to kind of go deep um, and kind of explain things from first principles. And and also sometimes when you when your job is to make an argument, you don't have the space to include all of the nuance and all of the argu other arguments um, in those few words. And so again, the podcast was a space to do that. Um, I think, I mean, I love podcasting. Um, I think partly, I hope that, uh, I think you can communicate things, you can communicate uncertainty. Um, you can communicate that you're, you know, I would hope that listeners would would understand that we're really just trying to kind of we're trying to explain it, right? I mean, Chad and I have views on things, um, but we think it's more important that listeners kind of understand both sides than they sort of come away um, come away with a with a particular view. And I, I think that's that's easier with more time, um, which you just get in the podcast medium. I think many like me will have just learned a new word in your answer, which is the word over matter. Oh, sorry. Yes. Um, which is a lovely <laughs> phrase that I had never encountered before, but I, it, it's sort of, you know, it's immediately clear what you're, what you're talking about. Um, is there a favorite podcast you've done? Ooh, um, well, one of our most popular episodes, um, I think our most popular episode ever was with Paul Krugman, but you know, it's Paul Krugman. Um, I think one of our most popular episodes with, with, was with um, Stephen Vaughan, who was general counsel of, of, of USTR under the Trump administration. Um, and that was a really great episode for a few reasons. One, um, I mean, the Trump administration, Robert Lighthizer, the USTR, um, was not, shall we say, an, an open guy um, who was, who was, uh, extremely fond of of talking to the press very much uh, during mm -hmm. his tenure, and so Stephen came on the podcast a little while after leaving the Trump administration, and he he wasn't talking for the Trump administration. Obviously, he'd left by then, um, but he was able to give an incredibly kind of lucid um, 
uh, explanation of the kind of, you know, uh, again, he was speaking for himself, but he's, he's close to Robert Lighthizer, right? And, and I think it was special because um, a lot of people had been following trade policy through Donald Trump's tweets. And Donald Trump is many things. He is not a he has not got the intellect or the experience of Robert Lighthizer, right? And so what Stephen was able to do is he was kind of able to explain, like, it's not just this kind of guy with his tweets. (laughs) There is actually more thinking behind this. Now, you can disagree with that violently, but it's not, it's not the kind of, I am a tariff man, right? There's, there's more stuff going on there. Um, and I just remember hearing, you know, it went around all the embassies like wildfire, wildfire, and everyone was kind of recommending it as as kind of this window um, into the more intelligent thinking um, uh, behind behind the trade policy. Um, yeah. yeah. And now that you've had, I guess, more than more than three years and and 150 episodes of doing this, do you do you think that? Um, you know, podcasts are, are have turned out to be a great medium for communicating trade policy. I mean, there's just some other issue maybe that you think you should have done or are you happy with, with, with your choice? I don't know why I'm muting myself. I'm pretty happy with my choice. Um, I mean, clearly I've been covering trade for the past few years, right? So doing something else would have been, would have been a bit strange. Um, I think it's, it's interesting now there's there's us there's the dollar and cents podcast there's trade guys podcast there's trade craft uh there's a new one out of um geneva uh i can't remember what that one's called but anyway so we've got like you know four four competitors at least um in the trade podcast space so other people clearly thought this was a good idea um i'm not sure any of us are kind of rolling in advertising money um uh but uh, it's certainly been very helpful. Um, well, to I do can my scratch job. that question off my list now. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we don't we don't have any. I mean, the the Peterson Institute kindly um, um, supports us in that they we have a a guy who kind of does the first round of editing. Um, I mean, I Chad and I do audio editing ourselves. Like, I am the one who inserts the music and and everything. Um, but we have a guy who kind of cleans up the audio and and stuff. Yeah. Um, and so they pay for that. Um, but otherwise, this is basically kind of a hobby of mine um, that I do on my evenings and weekends. Um, so I'm not sure it's kind of economically sustainable. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's uh, we know that we know that students love it. Our listeners are students and we know that officials listen Um you know, many more people seem to know me from the podcast than my writings of The Economist, um, which is a function of not having a byline in The Economist. Um, I mean, I, I I love it as a medium, um, but, uh, you know, should there be, I'm, I'm going to be the, the Europe economics editor um, in a matter of, of weeks now. Should should there be a Europe economics podcast? Um, Chad, my, my Trade Talks co-host would say, absolutely not. I need to carry on doing trade forever. Um, uh, you know, if someone wants me to do a Europe podcast, then I'm, I'm all ears. Listeners, I don't know if that was a scoop, but um, of course, we're going to miss you uh, leaving Washington for London. Um, but w- perhaps looking ahead to that and making a bridge, um, what, you know, are there some experiences you've had in Washington that you think will help inform how you do things, um, you know, when you start looking at, at, at the European economic scene? And will trade be part of your, your mandate? Trade will not be part of my mandate, um, which is, I think, probably for the best as 
um, it will be too tempting to, to stay on my old stomping ground. Um, I think one of the incredible things about covering, um, about being an economics reporter in the US is that, I mean, the standard is incredibly high, right? I mean, there's a lot of, lot of competition um, and, you know, really to compete, you're having to do sort of your own original data analysis plus reporting plus all the other great things. Um, and so I'm hoping that I can sort of, I mean, obviously it's very competitive in Europe as well, um, but perhaps English language is slightly less um, uh, uh, less saturated than, than the American market. Um, and so I guess I'm hoping to, to, to do my own data. I mean, I was an economist before I became a journalist. So I, I'm, I'm hoping to do my own number crunching um, to, to travel a lot, but to kind of, base base my stories in that kind of original um analysis that that the americans do do super well um, well and that will give us plenty of uh, opportunity to have you as a guest again in the future um to talk uh, not about trade uh but about the european economy um absolutely. and and we uh, absolutely look forward to it so um Sumaya Keynes, thank you so much for making time to be with us uh, thank you for all you've done over three years in washington and uh, we look forward to keeping in touch Thanks for having me. And for all of our listeners out there, we look forward to having you with us on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Um, thanks for joining us. And until next time, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.